Hebrew, I love Romans, Hebrews 13, verses 20 through 25. I'm, I'm thinking ahead here, I think. Um, you know what I meant, thank you. There is a, uh, there's a noticeable thing about these verses this morning, and that is, they are the last verses in the book of Hebrews. We have arrived at the last section in Hebrews. Now, do not be deceived. This is not the last sermon out of Hebrews, but it is the last section. And we will be in this section at least today and next Sunday, and then one follow-up sermon after that, and I think we probably will be finished with Hebrews. But don't think for a moment that just because I said Romans 13, that that means it's our last sermon in Hebrews 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 25. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. And with that, the author of this book closes his exhortation. That's how he refers to the book. We talked about the book of Hebrews early on as being not quite a letter as Paul's letters are and as, as John's letters are, but that, that Hebrews is more a sermon or more an ex, ex, uh, exhortation to, to, to live the life, an exhortation to, to be faithful in their walk with Christ. And so he closes it by calling it that. Now, one of the things you typically do at the, at the beginning of a book is you talk about the authorship of that book. Uh, I, I said very few things about the authorship of, of Hebrews at the very beginning of this book other than quoting Origen, uh, the great church father, who Origen basically said, this is Haynes' paraphrase, I'll read you exact in a minute, but Origen basically said, you know, as to who wrote Hebrews, only God knows, indicating that this book was a, uh, an anonymous book. All of Paul's letters, if you read Paul's letters carefully, one of the first things Paul does is he identifies himself and he declares his apostolic authority. He identifies himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And, and he, makes that, he makes that clear up front because he wants him to understand from whom this is coming. Hebrews doesn't have that at the beginning. It just starts out talking about the final revelation of, of God in Jesus Christ. And so there's, there's, no real, there's no real introduction saying who is writing this book. And, and so there's been no real consensus on the authorship of Hebrews throughout the years. I spent the entirety of the series as we've moved through the book of Hebrews. I've been kind of having a, a parallel study through this time of thinking about who this author might have been who might have written this book. And, and helpfully, uh, David Allen of Southwestern Seminary, my alma mater out in Fort Worth, Texas, 
published his doctoral dissertation not long ago, about a year ago, and the title of that doctoral dissertation, the title of the book is The Lucan Authorship of the Book of Hebrews, uh, sort of proposing the idea that perhaps Luke wrote this book and this letter. And he, he kind of gave some indications on why that might be. Now, I want you to understand, I have not, I'm not dogmatic about this. This is not a matter of, uh, this is not a test of faith. Uh, as to who wrote uh, who wrote Hebrews, but I have come to believe over the writing of this, looking at various elements of it, that that Luke probably did indeed, or at least Luke is a legitimate candidate for the writing of Hebrews. There have been a lot of people proposed for that. Of course, the most obvious is the Apostle Paul. If you have an older copy of the King James Version, it says up at the top of the book, uh, top of the letter, top of the the, the book of Hebrews, it says. Uh, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. And that first appeared in, 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 when, the, when the King James Version was first published. Before that, nobody ever put the, uh, Paul, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews on that book. That was an arbitrary statement with no real historical grounding in it. Now, now, a lot of people argue that Paul is the author. They say that, that, that Paul's an author based on the fact that faith is a very important element in this book, and, and, and faith was important in the other epistles of Paul. Justification by faith alone. They based on the fact that even the passage we heard this morning, he talks about Timothy uh, coming with him to see them. Timothy's been released, and he's going to come with him. And we know that Timothy and Paul had a relationship, but Paul was not the only person Timothy had a relationship with uh, throughout New Testament history. Others say, well, he quoted Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, in the very beginning of this and, and several places in this. And, of course, Paul, in his great, uh, uh, great declaration of justification by faith alone, uses Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And so they said there is that tie-in there, and indeed it, it is something of a tie-in uh, with some of Paul's writings. But... While there's a strong emphasis on the person and work of Christ, there are also certain elements, and I think important elements, that do not seem to be Pauline. For instance, as I've already mentioned, uh, Paul's name is never mentioned here. That's pretty much out of character, contrary to Paul's way of writing, his style of writing. The apostle seems to put himself outside the circle of the New Testament apostles. He doesn't claim to be an apostle. Indeed, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 seem to indicate that he did not see himself as an apostle. And the style of writing is much more classical than Paul's style. Paul's writing in the Greek was very, very crude. It was not, it was not the, the flowing classical style of Greek writing such as this. Plus... In all of Paul's writings, never did he place a stress or an emphasis upon the priesthood of Christ. You do not find that in any Pauline literature. And so that is a unique thing to this book, bringing out that clear uh, discussion of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Others have said that Silas wrote it. Uh, some said Silas wrote it because there's similarities between 1 Peter and Hebrews, and they note that Silas was the amanuensis, or the secretary of Peter in writing 1 Peter. Peter dictated it to Silas. 
Others said that perhaps Barnabas was the writer. Barnabas was a Levite. He was well-schooled and well-versed in the Old Testament system of worship, and that's certainly dealt with here. Barnabas was known as a son of encouragement, and this is certainly an encouraging letter, an encouraging sermon about Christ's priesthood and the necessity of continuing in the faith. Uh, so some of the Pauline ideas could be explained on the basis of Barnabas' close association with Paul. Some believe that Apollos wrote it. That was the view of Martin Luther. Martin Luther said that he believed that Apollos wrote the book. He never tells why he believes that, and there's no real evidence before that, but there was another well-known Southern Baptist who held that, that uh, very firmly, and that was W.A. Criswell, the longtime pastor of First Baptist Dallas. He said, oh, I believe, uh, he was clear, I believe Apollos wrote it, but again, there's no evidence put forth. And then others have said Luke. And I used to think that, that David Allen possibly was the only person who ever really came up with that theory until I started studying and reading a little bit. And David Allen said that he believes, and in his thesis, in this premise, in his dissertation, says he believes that Luke is the writer of Hebrews, and he's writing primarily to many of the, the former Jewish priests who had become, as he wrote in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, obedient to the faith. These priests had followed Christ, and, and they had been placed in exile, and now they were out in exile, probably in this, what we call Syria today, in that area, and they were in exile with other believers, and they were growing in their faith, but they, of all people, were tempted to go back to the Jewish system because they had come out of it with such classical training. There is some patristic evidence, the early church fathers' evidence for the writing. Clement of Alexander said that the epistle actually was the work of Paul, and it was written to the Hebrews in the Hebrew language, but Luke had taken it and translated it carefully and published it for the Greek. Hence the change in style that's more like Acts and the epistle, and the, uh, uh, this epistle in the book of Acts is very similar. Origen the church father from who lived 185 to 254 that I quoted back months ago when we started this book that as to who wrote this book, only God knows. I, I never had heard the remainder of that quote. Everybody just uses that part. Here's what Origen said, though. He said, but who wrote the epistle? In truth, God knows. The statement of some who have gone before us is that Clement, the bishop of the Romans, wrote the epistle, because it seems to have been from Rome. He says it's from Italy there in verse 24. And others have said that Luke, the author of the gospel in Acts, wrote it. So even in that early second century of the church, there were those who believed that Luke perhaps wrote this book. One of the real keys to seeing that perhaps is that in Luke and Acts and Hebrews, there are 53 words that are unique to those books. Used nowhere else in the New Testament, nowhere else in other, any other writing. 53 words. Now you may say out of how many hundreds of words are in that book, is that really significant? As lexicology goes in looking at the meaning of words and tying together manuscripts and transcripts, 53 words is a very significant number to say they appear in no letters except Luke, Acts, and Hebrews. Tying those together. The vocabulary is very similar between the three, and we could go into all sorts of details. I'm not going to do that. But I do want to give you one or two other things. There's a near classical style in the prologues of all three of those. 
Luke, Acts, and Hebrews, in their first words, they, they take a classical Greek approach to presenting that. And, and they're all that way. They, they all, classical Greek started with an argument, with a, with a premise, and that's what they've done. Luke, presenting the premise of the humanity of Christ. Acts, presenting the premise that the Holy Spirit has come and filled His church. And the book of Hebrews, the premise that this is God's last revelation, His final revelation that is in His Son, Jesus Christ. Also, Luke, the Gospel, and the book of Hebrews make a lot of use of the phrase, how much more? How much more did Christ do this? How much more did Christ speak these words? I mean, throughout both of those books, if you go back and take your Bible and just look at those, in Luke and in Hebrews, that's a phrase that is used very commonly in that. Another evidence is Luke, Acts, and Hebrews. I realize this sounds more like a classroom lecture. We'll get to the sermon part in a minute. Uh, in the Luke, Acts, and Hebrews make almost exclusive use of the Septuagint. Now, you may say, well, good, what's the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. When you go to Paul and he quotes the Old Testament, he quotes directly from the Hebrew. He quotes directly from the Old Testament manuscripts or texts that he has before him. When, when Luke and Luke and Acts, and then when the writer of Hebrews quotes, they quote the Septuagint, that that. Greek translation of the Hebrew term. So it ties together around the, uh, the Septuagint. B.F. Westcott, one of the most renowned commentators in our, uh, of, of the 19th and 20th century, Westcott says in his commentary on Hebrews, it has already been seen by the earliest scholars who speak of this epistle, and they notice its likeness in the style to the writings of St. Luke. And when every allowance has been made for coincidences which consist in forms of expressions which are found also in the Septuagint or in other writers of the New Testament or in the late Greek generally, the likeness is unquestionably remarkable in his commentary. Paul, Luke's emphases in his gospel and in Acts and the emphases in Hebrews are very similar. And that is things like the emphasis on the humanity of Christ. The enthronement Christology, that Christ rules and Christ has come to reign as king over his people. Christ as God's final revelation is central in Luke's gospel, especially in the first and second chapters, and Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The perfection of Christ in his person and his work is emphasized in Luke and Acts and Hebrews uh, together. Interesting in angel angelology, the discussion of angels. Luke makes most mention of any of the, the, the gospel writers about angelic activity. And, and the author of Hebrews is the writer in the New Testament who seems most interested in, in looking into their theological status. What is the role of angels? And, and he talks about Christ is above the angels. He's above the created beings of God. And then Acts 7 and Hebrews 11 show us the two longest expositions of Old Testament history in the New Testament. In, in Acts chapter 7, and then we know Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, you have two complete expositions, uh, not complete expositions, but long expositions of Old Testament history. We know that Luke was a physician, but he was also a historian. 
He was concerned with details. He wrote the Gospel of Luke to tell us about the earthly ministry and life of Jesus Christ. And he concentrated on that person of Jesus, the person of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. In Acts, he says, I write to you again, my dear Theophilus, God lover, to say, I told you in the first book, in my first book, about the life of Christ. Now I want to tell you about the life and the work of Christ in his church through the Holy Spirit after Christ has been crucified, risen from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is the work of Christ in the church. And in the book of Hebrews, using same similar language, same similar style, gives us a theology of the priesthood, the high priesthood, the royal priesthood, the grandeur of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if Luke did write it, you have Luke writing a history of the life of Christ, a history of the church, and then a theology to build his case for the, for the Messiahship and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And you have a perfect trifecta there. You horse people will understand that terminology. A perfect trifecta, a, a grand slam, a, 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 he hits it all. He hits history, he hits theology. And so in reading that, it just seems that there is at least evidence, not proof, but evidence enough to say perhaps Luke was the writer. Why is that important? Well, I, I think it's kind of fascinating that perhaps Luke, that one who took it on himself to write the truth about Christ, in his life, and the truth about Christ, in his work in the church, and now to show this high priestly, this, this, this fantastic understanding of Christ being the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, all the laws, all of the sacrifices, all of the sacraments that took place in the Old Testament, that now he has been enthroned, and now he rules, and, and here he is. And, and so when the writer writes this, and, and Dare I say, I believe that when Luke writes this, he has the idea of closing the book, if you will, closing the chapters, closing the understanding as clearly as he can about the Lord Jesus. Now, if you think Paul wrote it, that's fine. If you think, if you think Silas or Barnabas or Apollos or, or whoever wrote it, that's fine. That's not a salvific matter. You don't have to, you don't have to believe in one writer but we know that somebody with authority and somebody that understood who Christ is in a glorious and a grand way, but who was somehow outside the realm of the apostles, which Paul was placed in the realm of the apostles through his call on the Damascus Road. So when we come to this last section, when we come to this talking about now the God of peace... Who, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd. By the way, that's the only place in this whole book that Jesus called the great shepherd. He's been the great high priest all through this. But, but now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing uh, to do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you notice something here? Last week, when we closed out that sermon, with verses 18 and 19, he closes out by saying, pray for us. Pray that we'll have a good conscience. Pray that uh, we'll, we'll desire to conduct ourselves 
honorably in all things and and pray this all the more that we may be restored to you we may be with you all the sooner he ends that passage by saying pray for us now in verses 20 and 21 particularly he says and here's how I'm praying for you I'm praying that the God of peace will equip you in every good work he takes that God of peace and amplifies on it and modifies it a bit and clarifies it in the statement who brought Jesus from the dead, the reference to the resurrection, brought the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of eternal covenant, even Christ Jesus our Lord. By the way, I, I was reading something this past week by one of my favorite uh, theologians. He was one of our early mentors in theology through the the use of cassette tapes. If you're young, you may not even know what a cassette tape is. But uh, he was through cassette tapes, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson. And Johnson was making a comment on this text, and I found it very interesting. He said, do you know, uh, and this is called an aside, but he said, do you know what the greatest evidence against evolution is in all the world? It's sheep. It's the greatest evidence against evolution. They have not evolved into intelligence. Sheep are dumb. Sheep, sheep, you know, sheep will stray away. They, sheep always need a shepherd to keep them straight. And they just can't do it without a shepherd. They, they do crazy things. And so S. Lewis Johnson said, you know, I've, I've come to believe that sheep are the greatest argument against the whole theory of evolution that exists today. And he said, isn't it amazing that in Scripture, Jesus and the writers who expound the teaching of Jesus call us sheep because we too need a shepherd and we have a shepherd in Jesus Christ we have a great shepherd he's the shepherd of the sheep who through the blood of the eternal covenant through his blood seal the eternal covenant even Jesus our Lord but he says I pray now the God of peace this God who raised Jesus this God who gave his son to shed his blood for our eternal covenant. I pray that this God of peace will equip you. That's really what the prayer is. Understand too, the God of peace does not mean the God of serenity. When he's talking about God of peace, he's not talking about everybody saying, oh, oh, the God of peace. Oh, I can just float away. He's not talking about that at all. I mean, it may carry with it some serenity at some times, but it's the God of peace who has bought our salvation. When you see the phrase God of peace, or when you see peace talked about in the New Testament, it clearly is not just about, hey, I have the absence of any worries, I have the absence of any problems, I'm just, I'm just face, uh, the Hindu would say, I'm, or the Buddhist one would say, I'm just enjoying karma, you know? It's not what the God of peace is all about. It's the God of salvation. It's a God who has brought peace in your soul, the, the peace with God. You were, Paul said in Romans, you were once at enmity with God. You were once enemies of God. But the God of peace has brought you through His Son into a peace relationship, a salvation relationship, a personal relationship. And He has changed your heart and changed your life. He's the mighty God. He's the God of the resurrection. He's the God of creation. He's the God who continues to sustain us. And He sustains us by equipping us in every good thing, every single good thing, to do His will. When you think about God giving you every good thing in your life, what do you think about? 
just think about that. When you think about God giving you every good thing, think about houses and cars and bank accounts, and it's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the God of peace somehow making your life easier and more peaceful just simply because there is no struggle in it. But he's talking about the God of peace equipping you with every good thing to do his will. He gives you good things to do his will, not to distract you from his will. Now, we sometimes let the good things God gives us deflect his will away from us. We let the good things that God gives us be more, uh, be more a hindrance to doing his will <coughs> excuse me, than doing his will. I pray that the God of peace will equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's his prayer. There's his prayer for these Jewish believers, perhaps, as David Allen proposes, for these Jewish priests who had come to faith in Christ and who had been exiled and who were struggling with their walk with Christ. Just like you and I struggle in our walk with Christ. And, and we're not tempted to go back to Judaism. We're not tempted to turn back to something. But we're, we're, we're tempted to turn back to ourself. The biggest idol in the world today is the idol of self. It's the idol of I can do it. I, I can do whatever I want to do. And he's saying here, it's the God of peace who equips you to do his will. He does his will in you as you're submitting to him. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. We can't please God in our own strength. We please God as he works within our life. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Our purpose... As individual believers, as those who are called by Christ, redeemed by Christ, our purpose individually is to glorify Christ. And He works in your life to, to glorify Christ through you. And that's to be your sole desire. That's to be how you use those good things that God has given to you. It's for the glory of Christ. It's for the glory of God. Not for the glory of self. Not for the building up of the self. Not for the, not for the pleasure of the self. But for the glory of Christ. Now, does that mean you can't be comfortable? No. Does that mean God doesn't bless you in ways that are unbelievable and, and you say, oh, I'm grateful for this and... And I'm enjoying this? Certainly you do. But you never ever focus just on what you get. It's all to be for His glory. You see, you know, we, we talk sometimes about, we take this offering plate, we say, uh, we give back a little bit to God, 10%, 15%, whatever you, you know, we give something back to God. You're not giving anything back, that's His. And what you've got that you don't put in the plate is His. And He's given it to you for one purpose. 
to be a channel of ministry in other people's lives. It's all his if you're a believer. When we talk about we've been bought with a price, that he paid the price, he bought us, we are now his slaves, it means everything we have is his. And that's what, the, 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 that's what Luke here is praying for these believers. In everything God has given you, he's done that, that you might be equipped to do good deeds, do good things, to do his will, and to do things that are pleasing in his sight. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, this book, this sermon. Hear it, for I've written to you briefly. Now, you could probably read this as a sermon in about an hour. We've taken a little longer to examine it. So you're probably looking at it and saying, what do you, what do you mean, briefly? It's the 59th sermon on this book. That's not very brief. Well, he was brief because this was read as a sermon to a congregation of believers. But bear with this word of exhortation. When he says bear with it, he means live it, trust in it, abide in it. Be equipped by it in every way. You see, that's what, that's what my prayer is. Every time I stand in this pulpit, every time I expound the word of God... I don't want you walking out of here saying, oh man, that's a good sermon. Whether it was or whether it wasn't. You always say it was. A lot of times when you get out of here about 15 minutes and somebody says, what did the preacher preach about today? You're like, you know, oh, I guess it was sin. You know. Or Jesus. That's always a good answer, you know. Oh, he preached about Jesus. Oh, that's a, that's a winner. That's a safe answer. But my desire is not that there just be a, not just be a general, oh, he preached about sin or he preached about Jesus, both of which come out in most of my sermons at, at some point, hopefully Jesus more than anything. But my desire, my purpose is that you're being equipped, you're being strengthened by what the Word of God says, that you're, you're trusting Him all the more. So when you walk out those doors, it's changing your life to equip you for every good thing in every good thing to be a ministry to others to be a ministry to one another in the body and to be a ministry to those outside this body who need Christ to share the gospel to share about this great high priest who has given it all his very life that we might live not just that we might live in heaven one day but that we might live right now for His glory forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Father, it is by your word that we are strengthened that we are equipped. And I pray, Holy Father, that it's by your word that we will walk in obedience. Father, when 
the writer of this book says, grace be with you all. He's talking about grace that is not just that initial salvific grace, but it's grace that carries us every day. It's grace that is equipping us to do your will. It's grace that is strengthening us to be obedient to you. Father, help us to live in that grace every day in everything we do. Father, I pray for those this morning that do not know you, that your Holy Spirit would move in their life with this grace and draw them to yourself. Thank you, Father. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.